Alcohol Tipping Point is brought to you in partnership with Speak Studios and Speak Boise. Speak Boise is a community-driven studio space where voices from all walks of life can speak and be heard. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at Speak Studios, Speak Boise, and at their website, speakstudios.com. Speak Studios, speak and be heard. This podcast is also brought to you by Instant Imprints. Promote better with Instant Imprints. Instant Imprints are Boise's visual communications experts and your place for everything you need to promote your business, club, school, or group. As a locally owned business, Instant Imprints specializes in making your organization more visible with custom branded apparel, embroidery, promotional items, print services, and wide format printing for signs, as well as banners and vehicle graphics. Want better ways to get noticed? Visit Instant Imprints at instantimprints.com slash Boise or call 208-IMPRINT. That's 208 467 Seven four six eight. Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Debbie Maisner, and today I have Dr. Brittany Bryant, a clinical researcher um, and just mental health advocate. I'm super excited to have her on here. Um, and I'm going to let you, Dr. Britt, um, go ahead and just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so um, you had it right. I'm a clinical researcher. Um, and prior to getting into research, I actually uh, used to oversee an adolescent substance use treatment program. And so I was providing integrated mental health and substance use treatment uh, treatment to uh, kids who were between the ages of 12 and 18 years old, um, and then also working with adults who were a part of an intensive outpatient program. And so um, I actually got into research because I was noticing that I had a lot of questions um, in terms of like the uh, clinical modalities that we were using um, for substance use and mental health treatment. And then I also saw that there were lots of gaps um, for a lot of my patients trying to get into treatment. And so the research piece allows me to to be able to, number one, answer a lot of those questions by creating an ideal uh, kind of research setting to test a lot of these um, situations that come up in the clinic. And then as we're testing them and figuring out, you know, what works best, we can then disseminate that information back to clinicians to say, all right, this is an ideal situation, but we also have the opportunity to test it in a real situation. And these are the things that might be helpful for it particular populations addressing these particular things in terms of mental health and substance use treatment. Um, I also look at barriers uh, to accessing treatment as well as culturally adapting um, interventions so that um, for particularly for people of color who are coming to treatment, uh, we have components of interventions that are able to address some of the challenges um, that individuals, particularly in the black community, um, have to face when attempting to, um, again, get treatment. And so um, I love, absolutely love Nudor, uh, the patients that I've had the opportunity and privilege to work with, um, but I also really, really enjoy being able to try to make impact from a different angle um, in terms of research. Yeah, so so very qualified background, you know, working like boots on the ground, 
working those inpatient and then also doing the research to just find out like what's working, what isn't when it comes to treating addiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what have you discovered in your research? You know, maybe what's surprising, what's not like, what are, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, well, the biggest thing um, that has come up most recently is that when we think about um, clinics who are offering substance use uh, treatment to teens and adolescents, they usually start at the age of 12, right? Um, And I'm looking at some research from a national longitudinal study that has shown us that we have kids as early as 19 years old who are sitting um, in non-religious settings, um, sitting alcohol. And so when we think about what the literature says about that, um, that's particularly important um, because we have 19 year olds who are starting to sip. We know that sipping precedes drinking, right? And so a lot of those kids um, are increasing their risk of drinking very heavily by the time they're in, you know, as early as the ninth grade. So if they're not coming into my clinic until 12, but they've been sipping alcohol since the age of around nine and 10, right? A lot of our kids sometimes are coming into a clinical setting much further along in the progression um, of what we call the disease, right, in terms of addiction, um, than they probably would have been had they not started so early. And so, again, when we think about um, why this is important, this is where, you know, prevention becomes really important. Um, There are a number of, you know, prevention um, programs that they've had um, in the past. One that we know is most popular, but, you know, the least effective, which was DARE, right? And Mm -hmm. so people were in school saying, just don't do drugs, right? Just say no, don't do it. Um, and we know that that doesn't work. <laughs> and so we have to be able to come up with some really good um, prevention efforts for our kids and talking to our kids a lot earlier about some of the challenges um, and risks that are associated um, with engaging in substance use, but particularly with alcohol. And alcohol becomes so important because there's such a permissive culture Um around alcohol. When you look at literature, again, a lot of the kids who are sipping or drinking at an earlier age are doing it because they have parents who are like, yeah, this is this is okay to do. We're teaching our kids how to drink um, responsibly. And it's like we can teach them how to do it without exposing them, right, to alcohol at such an early age, particularly with the effects that we know alcohol can have on the brain um, and how it changes the structure and function of the brain. And so, um, that, I think that was the biggest thing for me. It's like I'm doing this work, and I'm like, yep, we started at the age of 12, and then we have kids who we now know are starting a little earlier in terms of just being introduced to the substance. Um, and so, again, you know, prevention efforts are, are really, really necessary right now. And did you, did you when you were talking about 9- and 10-year-olds, were you saying sipping? Sipping, yes, sipping alcohol. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so... Uh, they used to use the term early initiation, right, which just kind of had this um, this idea to it where people are just jumping into drinking like normal. And it's like that's not necessarily how it always works for a lot of the kids. We have a number of kids who are just jumping into, you know, sip, I mean, jumping into drinking. They're actually sipping people make the assumption that we're just going to jump into drinking, right? But we know that for a lot of our younger kids, our parents are giving them sips of drinks, right? Mm, um, okay. To the point to where because there's a permissive culture around it, you know, they'll get a sip themselves. <laughs> and that sip sometimes progresses into um, maybe drinking more than just a sip or turning into a full drink. Got it. Well, and you hear that argument a lot, like in 
let's say France, like the children in in France have wine with dinner or whatnot. Like we're exposing them to alcohol early. I mean, what a strange argument um, for drinking, quote unquote, responsibly. And, and the other thing that I, you know, sometimes talk about to counter that argument, right, is perception and perspective about a lot of this, um, it makes a difference, right? And so in some other countries, um, the risks that we view, you know, as risky behaviors aren't necessarily viewed the same way in other countries, right? So it's kind of like yes. when we have kids who are driving under the influence here, right, they could have pretty strong implications for, you know, legal issues. But in another country, you know, if they're driving, legal driving age is 16 or legal drinking age is 16, right, you're going to have more of that that may be viewed as more permissible or socially acceptable than that may be here, Right. And so um, and the fact still remains that just because those behaviors are socially acceptable doesn't mean that the um, the dynamic of having substance use disorder doesn't exist. Right. Um, they still may have the same um, physical um, challenges that are associated with in mental emotional challenges that are associated with addiction but again you know if this is normal and everybody in our family does this everybody in our family has rough days where we may be found in a place where we're not really normal or, or used to finding ourselves etc cetera, etc cetera, then that's one thing but that's perspective right if we're here and we still start those things early on and it progresses into this thing called addiction, there's a reality to the fact that that comes along with consequences. And if we're in the United States and the law says that with these things, this is what's going to happen. When we're driving under influence, this is what's going to happen. If, if those things are still what we're dealing with here, it doesn't negate the fact that we still have to deal with our consequences here, right? And so, again, people are trying to have the argument about introducing, right? But we don't necessarily do that with a whole lot of other things. Oh, yeah. Very, Can you right? imagine? Like, <laughs> why don't you try a little bit of this this heroin? Or here, have this, exactly. have this um, opioid pain pill. Interesting. Right. Well, right. I, I was thinking about that, too. Like, I mean, alcohol is a drug. We do treat it so we group it differently um mm -hmm. but but when it comes to treatment i mean isn't your approach similar to treating other drug addictions absolutely absolutely so you know we still view alcohol as a drug we view marijuana um as a drug and although a number of people say that you can't get addicted to it i've treated people who have um cannabis use disorder and the severe dependence of it right and so um, we treat those things just like we would treat any other substance. Um, now, the level of treatment might be different depending on the progression and just how far somebody is in terms of um, whether or not they're in full-blown addiction versus, you know, in that stage of what we call problem and risky behaviors. Um, but, you know, the the end results sometimes, depending on who we're dealing with, is the same. And a lot of those factors, right, when we think about how this thing progresses, you know, we don't always know what those factors are going to be for each child, right? We can ask parents if this is something that runs in your family, if there's a genetic predisposition. We can ask people if they have a history of trauma. We can ask people if they are undergoing lots of stress. And all of those factors we know are a really good recipe um, for coping and people who are 
probably going to move a little faster in the progression um, of this thing called addiction, right? Um, but we also know that for some people, they can use a lot of this stuff and it never affects them in the same way. My thing is, right, if we don't know who it's going to affect and in what way it's going to affect people, we have to be very cautious as we approach it. So it's not to say that with teens or with youth that we tell people don't ever use substances. What we tell them is to delay as long as possible, right? Wait until you get older and your brain is closer to being a little more developed, right? That's why they give that age range of, you know, around 21 where people are going to start drinking, right? We want people to wait as long as possible um, so that whatever is happening with the brain development is starting to settle. And we don't have people whose brain is settling, right, where addiction is already at the top of the hierarchy um, because that becomes problematic. A lot of our kids who use a lot earlier and they are already in that place of addiction into their teenage years have a, a really difficult time as they become adults, you know, because they are more likely to be still dealing with this thing called addiction versus someone who, you know, may have delayed or never started at all. Well, let's kind of switch more towards the adult side of addiction. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on harm reduction. Yeah, I think harm reduction is um, and really, may, really... And maybe... Oh, sorry, Dr. Brittany. Um, maybe explain it uh, first a little bit, um, just the idea of harm reduction and then what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, and so um, very, very simplistically, like when we think about harm reduction, it's like how do we engage in behaviors um, where we can reduce our harm as much as possible, right? Um, and when we think about that, particularly when we think about alcohol, for example, um, there are people who will teach harm reduction, and as they're teaching, they'll teach very, you know, um, basic principles and, you know, steps on how to drink um, without, you know, binging, number one, um, without, you know, getting to the point to where you're blacking out, you know, or uh, engaging in high-risk behaviors. And so one of the things that people would uh, suggest is drinking, you know, water, glasses of water in between each alcoholic beverage, right? So it's kind of like we slow down this process, um, we give the body enough time, right, for <laughs> this water to in some way start clearing some of this stuff out. And so it's like you have a less likelihood at least that's the understanding, you'll have a less likelihood um, of getting wasted in a social setting if you slow down, right, the the amount that you're drinking in such a small period of time. Um, and so that's just one of the ways. Um, some people, depending on, you know, how they interact with other people and the influence of other people, some people will say, you know, you want to get around people that you're less likely to drink more around so that you decrease the likelihood um, of drinking a whole bunch, right, in a short period of time. And you have a higher likelihood of being really cautious um, and aware of how much you're drinking so that you can still walk out of the situation without embarrassing yourself or um, still very alert um, in the situation. But again, those things are taught to kids who are, you know, over the age of 21, so adults. Um, and then the other part is that for people who know that they're going to have people who are under the age of 21 drinking, they tend to teach those things so that, you know, again, they can reduce their harm, but also to reduce harming themselves or someone else, right? And so I don't, I'm not against it at all. Um, I think harm reduction is a really important um, 
tool to teach, particularly because it takes out this whole unrealistic element of asking people not to engage in behaviors at all, right? When we know that they have a high likelihood of still doing it. So I would rather teach my children how to be safe if they're going to do it versus telling them not to do it at all and they do it anyway, right? It's the same thing when we think about um, sexual behaviors, for example. You know, we would rather teach, you know, people going into these situations how to be safe versus saying just don't have sex, right? That's not realistic. What is more realistic is to teach them how to reduce their their risk and their harm as much as possible. Yeah, I got it. And and so it's just and also like in the alcohol realm or drug realm of of um, treatment, it's it's not abstinence only focused, right? Which, right. which I think can be hard when you tell someone you can't do something, like psychologically, then they want to just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even with our adults, you know, there are times where people would come in with goals to say, I want to drink in moderation, right? I want to reduce um, the the amounts that I've been drinking before so that I can do something that's a lot safer, right? And so we can teach the things that would be helpful in doing that. The problem is for a number of people who are already in this place of addiction, it's hard to go backwards. You know, if you sat me in front of the buffet and I'm like, whoo, I love this buffet, right? And then you say, well, you're only going to get this one place. So all this other stuff is not you can see it, but it's not available to you. You know, how realistic is it for me not to want to pursue something that I know is available, right? And so what we begin to learn is that for a lot of our adults, either they can make this move to moderation or they can't. And if they tried it and they realize that over and over again, they're learning that it becomes really difficult to reduce um, or to engage in safer, you know, um, drinking behaviors, then that's where we have to really talk about if it's worth drinking at all, right? Um, and again, that's a hard, hard um, turn <laughs> to take for some people. Um, but for some individuals, we begin to realize that it might be necessary. Sure. Okay. And so with, with the adult population and drinking, what, what has some of your research shown? Well, I, I personally don't do research uh, with adults. All of my oh, research okay. is adolescents. My treatment, though, was with adults. Okay, yeah. Uh, so what I was able to see primarily with um, my adults, which I think is less surprising now, but definitely more surprising when I first came into the field, um, was the fact that as much as people will say this thing, um, that people have to hit rock bottom, that that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that rock yes. bottom actually gets deeper, right, as time progresses. Um, and, you know, there's there's really no such thing as somebody hitting rock bottom, right? People will make decisions based on really significant times in their lives. But just because they've made that decision one day doesn't mean that five or ten years down the line, two or three months down the line, that that decision may change, right? Um, and there might be that, that day where it's like, I don't want to do this thing called sobriety anymore, you know? Um, and so as much... As for an individual outside of the recovery world would be surprised by the fact that something significant to happen to somebody and they still want to go back and drink. That's not as surprising anymore, right, when you've seen it happen, right? There's also no shame in that because that's that's typically how addiction works. We know that there are these moments where there's one day where it's like, I can do this thing called recovery for the rest of my life, maybe, right? And then the next day, it's like, I'm not sure if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... 
you know, I think that was the biggest thing that was an eye opener for me was that there, there doesn't have to be a rock bottom. Right. Um, and that, that rock bottom, once it's hit, it doesn't mean that things can't get worse or that things may not get worse. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it used to trip me up every single time where I would see somebody who would have something really significant, you know, even be waiting on a transplant, for example, and had just had a drink days before entering into treatment. And it's like, wow, they specifically said, right, if you have a drink, you could potentially be thrown off of this list. And that still wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough in some cases. Um, and so when we think about, again, just how difficult this thing called addiction can be, I often try to um, reiterate to families and to individuals who are supporting people who are in recovery, you, you want to show compassion and you want to be as consistent as possible and loving people through this process because it's hard. We know it has to be hard, right, with the cycles of, of the way that addiction works. And then, um, you know, you mentioned that you, you also work with ending the stigma around getting help around addiction among, uh, about mental health and, and specifically how it relates to people of color. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, and so I think that when we think about um, addiction in general, right, for anybody who is um, dealing with recovery and anybody who has mental health issues, one of the things that becomes the hardest thing sometimes is to get into treatment. And so there's so many um, stigma, so much stigma that comes along with um, pursuing treatment. You know, is somebody going to see me walking into the Institute of Psychiatry, right? That's the name of my building that I work mm-hmm. in now. Is somebody going to see me walking into this building? Um, and, you know, what are they going to think? Are people going to think that I'm crazy um, because I'm going to um, counseling or because I'm going to mental health treatment? You know, is somebody going to think that I'm, you know, stupid or that um, I don't have any willpower because I have to get treatment, right, for substance use? Um, and so, My hope, particularly around social media, is to bring as much information as possible um, so that people will learn, number one, that what we deal with in real life is nothing to be ashamed of and that there are many more people who um, experience the exact same issues. They just don't talk about it, right, Um, for the same reasons that most people don't want to tell people that they need help or that they need to go to treatment. Um, there's a lot of shame that's associated with it. But if we can start normalizing just how often this happens and if we can start normalizing how how helpful and beneficial it is um, for individuals to seek help in the fact that these things are not intended for people to have to walk through by themselves, the hope is that more people will pursue treatment um, and tell others about it so that we have more individuals who realize that this is something that is a benefit um, versus something to be ashamed of. Uh, I mean, it's so important to like recover out loud and, and just break that stigma. And I mean, just thinking about AA being one of those, on, what seemed like one of those only options. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous, like it, it has right. been anonymous. I mean, it's been a secret. You keep mental illness secret growing up and you don't talk about mm-hmm. it and and you don't see people getting help. Um, totally. Great work. Right. And then how right. does, yeah. And then how does that relate um, 
just to being culturally sensitive and, and to people of color? Yeah, so one of the things that we often see when we look at literature is that treatment, particularly around, um, among um, the black and brown community, um, treatment is underutilized, right? And it's for a number of reasons. Um, for uh, barriers to treatment um, is one of those things. Um, not having counselors that, you know, we can relate to um, is another um, barrier to seeking treatment. Um, and then also when we think about the history, right, of um, the medical field, uh, particularly with black and brown individuals and how, um, you know, research and hospital systems have really, um, for lack of a better phrase, done us wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to then turn back to those institutions and say, hey, can I trust you to give me help, right? Um, and so when we think about, you know, just, um, being culturally sensitive to these things. Um, one of the things that I always try to encourage um, in the spaces that I am in for institutions, for hospitals and research um, is that we make sure that there is diversity um, among our staff, that there's diversity um, within the clinical uh, staff and researchers that we're hiring so that when people walk into the clinic, they're able to feel a lot more comfortable because they see people reflected, um, you know, who are there to help them versus someone who's sitting there um, looking like potentially the perpetrator, right, um, of some of the historical racist experiences that they've had to go through. Um, and that's that's a really big thing um, that a lot of people don't necessarily want to talk about. And if, you know, sometimes there's this thought that if we don't talk about it, we don't have to, we don't have to dress it or we don't have to worry about it. It just go away. And it's like, it's not, it's not going away. <laughs> we actually have to do something so that the um, healthcare system that we say is supposed to be accessible to everybody truly is accessible to everybody. Right. Um, but also recognizing that in terms of mental health, that there are lots of components um, that are grounded in racism and discrimination that impacts um, the way that we have to navigate the world, right? And so with that understanding, um, you know, the hope is that clinicians will become educated and aware of those things so that as we have people of color who are entering into a treatment setting, we're able to um, be more sensitive to that, right? Um, and I mean, I could go off on a dissertation about, you know, in what ways we could do that. Um, but I think that the most important part is that we have to have more allies um, among clinicians, among researchers, um, among individuals who are in the helping professions, um, so that when we have marginalized populations coming into these settings, they feel safe and they feel comfortable because they know that there are people there to help them. Yeah, just that, that someone to know, like, and trust. And and for those that don't know the background of of the the historical background of, of why now um, the Black Brown community has not trusted the medical community or the research community, can you share a little bit about the history of that? Yeah, um, it's it's actually quite a long history. <laughs> um, but yeah. just some of the highlights, um, we have, you know, Henrietta Lacks, who was basically um, experimented on um, for a long time. A black, um, a black woman, right? A black woman mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, who was, her body was basically used mm -hmm. um, for a lot of the 
um, medical knowledge that we now have today. Um, she was not credited for those things. She was not treated um, in a ethical way. Um, and so those are that's just one example of, you know, the history of, uh, you know, black people being treated poorly uh, in in the medical field. Um, when we think about the Tuskegee mm-hmm. experiment, that study um, was problematic. Um, yet another example where we have a number of black men that were um, injected with syphilis um, and not given proper treatment for it. And so when we think about, um, that you can fast forward to, you know, present day where we have high mortality rates for women um, who are uh, pregnant and having babies. Uh, when we think about um, black and brown people coming into the hospitals, they are typically believed less. I know my, my own experience with having my third child, I went into the hospital with a um, blood pressure of like one, I think it was like one, uh, 48 or 158 over mm-hmm. 130, something crazy and astronomical, you know, for me. I normally run about, um, about, you know, 110 over 90, you know, something really low. And so to go in with that and having so much pain in the back of my head and my legs were swollen, um, and I'm a pretty thin girl. And so having these huge legs um, and retaining so much fluid was just not normal for me. Um, and I'm telling them I'm in pain, and they were like, you just had a baby. Everything's normal. You need to go back home. Um, and had I not pushed for somebody to really do, you know, adequate tests and to, to look me over fully, um, I would have never known that I was in the early stages of heart failure. They were going to send oh. me home in that in that state. Um, having just had a baby, and I'm talking about, like, she was a week old at the time. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that keep coming up where people are believing us less when we come into these settings um, and we're not getting adequate care, right? But when you pair that with the historic um, background of just being treated horribly, right, in medical and professional research settings, it it does give you pause when you have to think about going and getting help from individuals, um, particularly in the climate that we're in. Every time you walk into a situation, you have to ask yourself, is this safe? Mm-hmm. Right. Am I going to walk out of this situation, you know, in the same way that I came in? Um, and it makes sense for people to think twice um, or even a third and fourth time about, you know, going into treatment for really anything these days. And so when we think about something like mental health, um, where a lot of us have had to deal with, you know, um, some of the challenges that come with depression and with anxiety um, on our own, um, expecting that someone who does not look like us is going to be readily available to help is just not something that I normally think about. Um, and I, I would presume some people in my community may not think that as well, right? And so, again, when we just think about, you know, historical experiences, those are the things that tend to um, that tend to come up and um, that gives us pause when we have to to seek treatment. Yeah. And, and so how how do you repair? You know, you mentioned having allies and education and diversity. And what are some of the other ways we can help? repair, improve this particular area? How can we help people? 
Yeah, well, allyship is definitely the first place to start, mm-hmm. right? And when we think about allyship, I mean allyship in terms of being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And so um, part of that really involves um, people who are not a part of the marginalized group becoming very educated and aware um, of what's going on. Um, and, you know, when you see it going on in your space, being able to speak to it um, and to be intolerant of it, right? And so one example that I often give is that because um, my my patient population um, deals with mental health and substance use, when one of my patients calls over and says, hey, you know, I think I broke my ankle. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm at the ER, which is right across the street from us. Mm-hmm. I'm at the ER and they're telling me that I'm seeking medication. They think I'm pain you know seeking pain medication they're not giving me an x-ray they're not listening to me right that's when i get up from my desk and i walk over to the er and i advocate on behalf of that individual in a way that they aren't able to advocate for themselves right and in that specific instance i you know called for them to go ahead and do the (laughs) x-ray i said you know you have no reason um besides that that you can see that this person has been in my clinic to not give them an x-ray for something that they say is a concern for a broken, a broken ankle. And so reluctantly they go and do the x-ray and they see there's a complete fracture. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so again, when we think about these things coming up, when we walk away and we say absolutely nothing, you know, silence is consent. And the best thing that we can do if we're going to do anything is to not just say that we're allies, but demonstrate that by, you know, showing action, by speaking up on behalf of individuals um, who are a part of the marginalized population and not allowing a lot of this stuff to happen when it's happening in your presence. Sure. And and I, I saw that post that you did with, um, is it Van Jones, the CNN, mm-hmm. the interview with Cuomo about um, institutionalized racism in um, drug uh, use and um, criminalization. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? I was looking at the statistics and I was like, wow, I had not seen those statistics. And not- mm-hmm. So yeah, explain that too. Yeah, so in I, if it's okay, I want to come from um, my own experience okay. um, in clinical Definitely. Um, is how it's related to that particular video of why I posted it. Mm-hmm. And so I used to be in the clinic, um, and I used to try to remain aware, right, of the various demographic uh, backgrounds of individuals that were coming into the clinic, right, so that I could make sure um, that there, there was fairness, right, in, mm-hmm. in the diversity that I was seeing. And so um, still, what I was noticing was that the majority of the kids that were able to make it to the clinic were white, um, white males, and then the majority of the ones who had the most trouble, who were referred, but had the most trouble making it into the clinic were my black males. Um, and so when I really went to dig deeper, and I noticed where the referrals were coming from, a number of my white kids were being referred to the clinic because they got in trouble at school. Um, or I got in trouble with the police and were let off, right? So the mm-hmm. police would say, just for the treatment, um, we'll basically forget that this ever happened. Or the school would say, you know, we caught you selling in the bathroom, but we just need you to go to treatment. Um, and once you can give us some paperwork showing that you've completed treatment, you can, you know, come on back to school without any restrictions, 
right? We won't expel you. We won't go through that whole process. And then when I went to look at um, a lot of my black children who were coming into the clinic, they were usually coming by way of the Department of Juvenile Justice. And so, but when we look at, right, what happens, most times it was for the exact same offenses, right? Mm -hmm. So they might've gotten caught at school um, either with something on them um, or even selling, right? But instead of having the route, where we're going to give you the opportunity to go to treatment and forget this ever happened, a lot of my kids, they called the police on um, on our black kids. And then those black kids were then sent um, to court. They had to go through this whole process and now put on probation. And now they're coming into my clinic um, now that they're out on community probation. And so they had the potential to have a record. If, if they didn't complete all of these um, long lists, right, of requirements. And so I saw that. Time and time and time and time again, um, where the trajectory, the road, right, to my office was not the same. The, mm-hmm. the chances were not the same when we think about for my white kids versus my black kids. And when we see that interview um, between Cuomo and uh, Van Jones, we, we are able to see that not just played out in my clinic, but it's played out everywhere. Right. When we think about the high incarceration rates uh, for black males who are in jail over selling small amounts of marijuana versus white people who are selling the same things, but they're coming to treatment. Yeah. So it's kind of like this is what we mean. Go ahead. Yeah. I just just wanted to um, kind of refresh for my memory what those stats were showing that actually white people. Were you, are, was it the same or more as far as drug so, usage? And then for the, drug use, using white people were using more. Yes. Right. But for selling white and black people were selling about the same. Yeah. But black people jail for it. Yes. Yeah. So it was so obviously. Uh, it was disproportionate. Obviously disproportionate. More white people use drugs than black people. Same amount sell, but more black people are in in jail, criminalized for it than white people. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And so, again, these are things that I was able to see in my clinic, mm-hmm. right? And I'm thinking, oh man, this is really, this is really terrible happening in Charleston, South Carolina. But then when you have this on the national platform, you realize it's not just in the South. This is happening everywhere, right? Um, but this is what we mean by systemic and institutional racism. And a lot of people will say, well, that doesn't exist. And it's like, we have evidence and data that, that shows that it does, right? If we're, if we're going to provide the avenue of treatment for white people, then the avenue of treatment should have been a first priority for everybody, right? Why yeah. Why is everybody that? Um, why is it... Everybody criminalized for it. If, we, if we're going to sure. put some people in jail, everybody in jail for it, right? I don't advocate for criminalizing it, but you know, my thing is we have to we have to be able to see these things for what they are, and then if we're going to be calling ourselves allies, we have to speak out about it, right? We have to make sure that individuals are aware of it, and if there are ways for us to address and fix it. We have to do the work to do that because there are individuals who this does not impact. And if it doesn't impact you, most people are less likely to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I just, I found that just such a visual, such a powerful visual. Um, wow. Well, what, what would you say, um, what's a message you want to get across for just the people listening to this podcast who are either sober or sober curious? Um, for people who are sober or sober curious, um, probably, uh, probably never to forget. Right. So there was this study that was conducted a long time ago, um, where they told one group, remember all of the challenges, right. That came from addiction. And make sure that you do everything that you can to remember it. Have anniversaries, keep the shoebox with all, you know, the the um, the reminders in it, so that you can open that shoebox and remember it every once in a while, right? Um, and then they told the other group, absolutely nothing. Go on about your life, um, do whatever you you need to do. Happy, um, you know, efforts and in, in remaining sober. And when they went back uh, years later to look at both of those groups and found that the group who was intentional about remembering, you know, the impact that addiction had on their lives were the ones who were more likely to stay sober versus the individuals who did nothing right to remind themselves. And I think the really important thing that comes out of that is that our brain, just because we've chosen this thing called recovery and sobriety doesn't mean that our brain has stopped liking the substance, right? That's not, that's not ever how it works. Um, even for people who have an allergy to a particular food, if it was their favorite food, they didn't stop liking the food. They just realized that it was hard, you know, for them to engage in it without getting sick. And so when we think about people who are in recovery or people who are sober already, I always try to highlight the fact that let's not forget, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not forget why sobriety is important. Let's not forget how um, we ended up at this place, this thing called sobriety and recovery. Right. And if you're at the point where you're curious about sobriety, I always tell people, try it mm-hmm. and see if life changes for you. Right. If it doesn't and you feel like life is worse, you know, you have to make decisions based on that. But if you see an inkling of life becoming better, it's not a removal. Right. Of, of some of the substances from from your body and from your life. Try it for a little while longer and see if life changes a little bit more for you. I love that. It's so open and wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for for being on the show. It's been just a really thought-provoking conversation and important. And, I mean, I I hope that, you know, I continue to watch you just and the stigma and we all work together and and we improve lives and, you know, continue in allyship and, and whatnot. So I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day and the important work you do. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Anytime. Have a fantastic day. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode (laughs) of the Alcohol Tipping Point. Okay, we're done, Brittany. Thank you. Yay, sorry. Sorry for what? Like more 
about different things oh my gosh well I was just as I was getting ready for interviewing you I was like I have so many questions <laughs> so I should apologize for like taking you down different routes but I mean there's just so much to talk about and it, and it all feels so important and and heavy but important and I just appreciate this conversation I appreciate you well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thinking of me, enough of me, um, to want to have me on your podcast. Yeah. Well, have a wonderful day. Um, like I said, it will be out Wednesday. I will post okay. about it on my Instagram. Um, if you have any questions, anything comes up, let me know. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys, so please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.